And you can uh, take your Bibles, turn them to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, which is where we left off four weeks ago. And then we took a little break from our Genesis series. Uh, Genesis is critical <clears throat> to understanding the rest of the Bible. Uh, it chronicles the foundation of God's redemptive plan, which is first unveiled in Genesis 3, that sad chapter where Adam and Eve listened to the lies of that old serpent, the devil, and joined him in treasonous rebellion against God, and in doing so unleashed sin and death into a once-perfect world, corrupting a once-perfect humanity. But embedded in Genesis 3 is the glorious promise of offspring of a people that would come from the woman, and from that people would come one special offspring who would undo Adam's failure, would crush the serpent, and bring salvation to the world. And as the chapters of Genesis unfold, we eventually meet a man named Abraham, and God tells him that it would be through his family that these ancient promises of offspring and worldwide blessing would be fulfilled, but, but due to Abraham's age… And Sarah's infertility, it seems less and less likely that God's promises will come true. It seems more and more impossible. And when you get to chapter 18, Abraham now is 99 years old. Sarah is 89. And God shows up to Abraham's tent for a little visit, along with two angels. And he reaffirms the promise that Abraham and Sarah will indeed have a child. He says, this time next year, it's going to happen because nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so, today, we're going to pick up where we left off last time. We're in verse 16 as this divine visitation continues with Abraham. And while the first half of the chapter focused on the blessing of offspring for Abraham and Sarah, the second half focuses on the sober message of judgment, but not without hopeful glimmers regarding God's overarching plan and regarding His wonderful purposes for His people in the world. So, please stand with me now, and let's read this Word together. We stand at Harbin's Church as a way of just reminding us that this is the Word of God. It's not the opinions of men. It's not Aesop's fables or anything like that. This is the very Word of God. It has the same authority as if, as if Jesus Christ were standing up here in the flesh and speaking these words to you. We are in Genesis chapter 18. And we're going to start at verse 16 and read on down through the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So... The men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, "'Will you indeed 
sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to, uh, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. The grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of God endures forever, and I pray that this Word would penetrate our hearts this morning. Uh, that you would help us to learn more about you, to learn more about ourselves, to learn more about Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, as we think about our text this morning, uh, the first thing that I want us to consider is the privileged position of God's people, the privileged position of God's people. Uh, When we looked at the first half of Genesis 18 several weeks ago, we marveled together over a beautiful truth, namely that God desires friendship with His people. Uh, When these three mysterious visitors show up to to Abraham's tent, and and I don't think Abraham at first quite realized who these were, that it was the Lord and two angels, but that kind of gradually dawns on him. Uh, But when they first show up, he extends hospitality to them. Uh, He's bringing water to wash their feet. Sarah's in the kitchen making cakes for them. They're, they're brought curds and milk, and the fattened calf is killed, and, and this great meal is set forth for the visitors. And the remarkable thing, the most remarkable thing about this whole scene is not that the Lord appears to Abraham, as remarkable as that is. I think the most remarkable thing is that the Lord receives Abraham's hospitality and sits, and eats, and drinks, and spends the afternoon fellowshipping with him. God doesn't need to eat. God doesn't need to rest. God has no needs that Abraham uh, can meet, and yet God enters into this fellowship with Abraham anyway, because in the ancient Near East, breaking bread, breaking bread together, it was not, not merely a, a, a way to, to fill bellies or to get nourishment. It was a demonstration of unity. It's a sign of the bond of peace and, and goodwill and, yes, even friendship. 
Indeed, the purpose of God's plan in redemption is to fix the relationship between God and man that was broken by Adam in the Garden of Eden long ago. And in our sin, we became enemies of God, hating God, running from God. And the story of redemption is the story of God running after man to make peace with man. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 calls the gospel a message of reconciliation. And he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so if you're sitting here this morning as an unbeliever, that's the most important message I have for you this morning. If you don't listen to anything else, just hear this. Be reconciled to God. Stop being an enemy of God. Uh, Turn from your sins. Trust in the Lord. Trust in Christ. And enjoy the special privileges that come with being His friend. And one of those privileges includes having a seat at the table with God and being made privy to His plans for the world. Look with me at verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth be blessed in him? That's a rhetorical question. In other words, Abraham has a special privileged position in my plan to bless the world, so why would I keep this from him? But there's more. It says in verse 19, for I have chosen him. Literally, I have known him. That word know in the Hebrew connotes a close, intimate, personal relationship. The word is used elsewhere to describe uh, the marital union. And so God here recognizes Abraham as as one with whom he enjoys a deep bond of unity with and close friendship with, uh, where secrets are shared and hearts are disclosed. You know, there's probably people in your life, probably not many, maybe even just one or two, whom you know in that that deep and personal kind of way, uh, somebody in your life with whom uh, you, you would share things with that you wouldn't share with other people. Uh, There's a level of close transparency that's reserved for those people alone. And that's how God is with His people. And so the psalmist says things like, the friendship of the Lord, or the secret counsel of the Lord, another way to translate that, uh, is for those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. So you and me and all who fear the Lord are part of this secret counsel. Indeed, God has actually revealed more to you than He has to Abraham. Uh, You have even more privileges because you you have right here in this book the, the full, complete revelation of God's plans for history. It's all right here. And you have an opportunity every day as you open up the Scriptures to sit in on the secret counsels of the Lord. And you, and you learn of His plans in that council, not just for you personally, but for the universe. You know, there's people in this world who desperately want to be in the know in regards to the political machinations of this world. People who would love to get into the White House and know the ins and outs and know what's really happening, what's really going on. You know, you'll never get in there. Secret Service won't even let you set a foot on the front yard. You'll be carted away quick. But if you are a believer, you have a seat at a table that is way more important than the table in the Oval Office. 
You are made privy to the most important things that are happening in the world. And how sad it is that sometimes we are more eager to turn on Fox News or or pull up the Drudge Report than we are to open up the Word of of God. We, We want to hear the talking heads on TV more than we want to hear the creator of the cosmos and the author of history. But He has opened up His council room to you. And when we seek to meet daily with the King uh, through His Word, you don't need to worry about the secret service. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're friends with His Son, you have access to the Father 24-7. And so, we have a God who reveals His plans for the universe to His friends. And here in Genesis 18, He reveals His plans to His friend Abraham. Now, why is that? Well, we see that God has a purpose for His privileged people. Verse 19, he says, "'For I have known Him, for I have chosen Him.'" Why? "'That He may command His children and His household after Him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice.'" So, to be a friend of the Lord is a wonderful privilege, but it is never without responsibility. And God has charged Abraham to lead the way and instruct his children, his family, the coming generations in the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that Israel, his offspring, might be a people of righteousness, that they would, as John Calvin explains, endeavor to do good to all, abstain from all wrong, fraud, and violence. And regarding justice, Calvin writes that it is the stretching forth of the hand to the miserable and the oppressed to vindicate righteous causes and to guard the weak from being unjustly injured. So Israel was chosen by God to demonstrate something of the of the goodness, the righteousness and the justice of God. Their lifestyle was to be a witness, a testimony to the pagan people surrounding them that they might learn about the goodness of the God of Israel and be drawn to him. Now that that's always been God's purpose for His people then and now. And so, the Apostle Peter says something very similar to the church today when he exhorts us to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And so, God's plan from the beginning to now is to build a community of people that would reflect the righteousness and the justice of God in the world. But notice it begins with Abraham, the head of the home, the head of the family. It begins with him teaching his children about the way of the Lord. And of course, the implication then is that his children will grow up and do the same thing. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that parents can force their kids to be godly. Parents can't change the heart. That's not the point here. But it does mean that God's people are to be intentional in instructing their children in the way of God. I was just recently talking with someone who was visiting Harbin's recently, and, um, and they were looking for a new church because they were thinking about having children, and, and they wanted to make sure that their kids were going to grow up in a church that would help them to grow in the Lord. That's the right attitude and a right recognition of the weightiness of the parental responsibility to teach the way of the Lord. And part of that will include making sure that, yes, you're part of a good church. The church is here to partner with parents in that weighty mission. But the first line of instruction for your children will be with parents in the home. So the onus is on you, Dad. It's on you, Mom, 
to read the Scriptures with your children, to teach the Scriptures to them, to talk about the Scriptures with them, uh, weaving conversations about the Lord in and out of everyday life, formally and informally, as Moses writes in, uh, in Deuteronomy, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And, of course, most importantly, make sure that your kids understand the gospel. Uh, many Christian parents unintentionally teach a gospel of moralism. Just obey and be good kids, and that means you're Christians. It's not the gospel. We aren't saved by being nice. We're not saved by being kind, which is the extent of teaching in a lot of little children's Bibles and curriculums. How about a children's Bible that says, you can't be nice. You can't be kind because, kid, you're rotten to the core. Let's call it the Depravity Study Bible for children. But thanks be to God that Jesus died for sinners like you, and we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone because of His shed blood. That's a good children's Bible right there. I think I just came on to a great publishing idea. Being Christian parents doesn't guarantee Christian kids. But from the very beginning, we see it right here, back here in Genesis 18, God has told His people to be diligent in passing on the truth to the next generation. And He often will use the faithful witness of godly parents to further build and add to the people of God. And so, I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy 1.5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you, from grandma to ma to son. That's great. And then consider the, uh, the exhortation of the psalmist in Psalm 78. read some of this earlier. Uh, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. Now, interestingly... God determines that revealing His plans regarding the city of Sodom to Abraham, revealing those plans, would actually be an aid to Abraham in fulfilling his important responsibility in commanding his children to keep the way of the Lord. And so, I want to move on in our considerations uh, to God's plan to judge the wicked. In verse 20, we are reintroduced to Sodom. We first heard about Sodom in Genesis 13, where Abraham's nephew Lot was enticed by its rich, abundant land, and he took his family to settle there. And we're told in Genesis 13, 13, that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's an ominous introduction. But obviously, God is patient with Sodom because Genesis 18 is many years later. But things have gotten so bad in Sodom that the time has finally come to take action. And so, in verse 21, God says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, when God talks like that, that freaks some people out. What do you mean? God doesn't know what's going on. He, he's got he's to go down and check some things out uh, for himself. Why, why is God talking like that? That kind of language, that doesn't mean that God is ignorant. God is using what is known as anthropomorphic language, where God speaks of himself uh, in, in human terms. Uh, in a way that humans can better understand something. 
God knows everything, including what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. He is, as we sang a bit ago, the judge of the secrets of the hearts of men. So he not only knows what's going on on the outside, but his penetrating gaze uh, burns into the inside as well, and he sees and knows all. And verse 21 is actually a way of communicating to us that very truth, that everything that God does in regards to judgment is done with perfect and full and complete knowledge. God doesn't act out of ignorance. God doesn't act capriciously. Uh, He doesn't act on hearsay. He knows everything. Uh, As a judge, he has investigated a case thoroughly and accurately. So God has all the facts, and therefore all of his judgments can be considered reliable and fair. That's the point of, of that verse. Now, what sin is Sodom and Gomorrah being judged for? Most people would immediately say, well, sexual immorality, and the Scripture affirms that. And the New Testament says in Jude 7 that Sodom, Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And that's specifically talking about homosexual desire, which is a sinful perversion of God's original order and design for sexual intimacy, which is one man and one woman in covenant marriage. That's not politically correct to say today. One day they may try to shut down this church for saying things like that. But friends, you've got to understand that Scripture teaches that any desire, not just sexual desire, but, but any desire that runs contrary to God's good original design and creation is a desire that has been warped and polluted by sin. And sinful desires are never commended in the Scripture. Sinful desires are, are not meant to be accepted and indulged in, contrary to the wisdom of this age, but instead sinful desires are to be confessed, repented of, transformed, renewed, aggressively fought against till the day you die, and in God's time overcome through the power of the Spirit. But what many people don't realize is that sexual immorality wasn't the only problem in Sodom. It never is only one problem. Sin hunts in packs. Sin is never content just to let you play with one thing. There's always ten more things that come with the deal. God says, the outcry against Sodom has reached me. That word outcry gives us a clue into the depravity of Sodom. That word is repeatedly used in the Bible to describe the cries of the oppressed and the brutalized. It's the cry of the oppressed widow and orphan in Exodus 22, uh, of the oppressed servant in Deuteronomy 24, of the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, and their cry reaches up to God. Jeremiah uses this word several times in his book to refer to the scream of terror that rises up when a person or a city is attacked. The outcry is the miserable wail of the oppressed and the brutalized. And this picture fits with what we see in Ezekiel 16, where the Lord describes the guilt of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty. In other words, they were prideful and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. This was Sodom, wealthy, fat, prosperous, yet turning a blind eye to the poor and needy, rampant injustice, abominable sexual immorality. They were a violent and dangerous people. We're going to see that next week. You couldn't even walk the streets at night without being victimized and brutalized. 
If Abraham was to lead the way in establishing a community of righteousness and justice, Sodom was 180 degrees opposite of that. And so in spite of God's desire to be a friend of sinners, there is this matter of justice that cannot be ignored. If God's charge to Abraham is to be the head of a people who are all about righteousness and justice and who oppose injustice, well, then God must be the same as well. Uh, While God desires to reconcile with sinners, uh, He cannot uh, do that by looking the other way and ignoring sin and sweeping it under, under the rug. That would be the ultimate injustice, would it not? Folks, we get angry when imperfect human judges let lawbreakers off the hook. Why? Because we want justice and expect judges to be just. So how much more should we expect that of God? Now, the revelation of God's plan to judge Sodom is strategic on the part of God. Remember, part of God's rationale for not hiding His plan from Abraham is because Abraham is supposed to command his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And so, Abraham, to fully instruct his children, needs to know about the judgment of God. He needs to know the details about what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, and that what happens to it is not a freak accident of nature, but it is the judgment of God. One commentator writes that when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, their ruins would become a powerful teaching tool to Abraham and his descendants. There on the border of Israel, The eerie, burnt-out, sulfur-stenched remains of Sodom and Gomorrah permanently testify to what happens to a people who reject righteousness and justice. And the knowledge of the truth of these cities was meant to strengthen Abraham's resolve and ability to instruct his children in godliness. My children, do you want to know what God thinks of an unjust culture? Take a look. Do you want to know what God does to such a people? Take a walk through the ruins. As a matter of fact, Sodom and Gomorrah remain a witness uh, to us to this day as an example, as the Apostle Peter tells us that uh, God, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Friends, you and I today, as we seek to pass on the knowledge of God to our children, to the next generation, we've got to tell them the truth. We've got to tell them the truth about God's judgment and that for those who persist in their rebellion against God, there is a judgment coming worse than the leveling of Sodom. It is the eternal fire of hell itself. And when you say, well, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to scare my kids. I just want to talk about Jesus. Friends, it was Jesus who warned us about a place of eternal darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was Jesus who said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So you may not want to scare your kids, but I do. Because Jesus says there's something to be afraid of. The most scary thing in the world is to be cut off from the blessing and favor of God forever. To be cut off from the friendship of God forever. That's scary. I want kids and everyone to be scared, but I don't want them to be scared forever. I want instead 
that such fear will scare them away from the path of destruction and judgment for sinners and will cause them to run towards the God who is a friend of sinners, running to Him for forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. That statement makes no sense if there is no judgment. But the people of Sodom continue to spurn God and walk the pathway of destruction, and after a time of great patience, God is now ready to act, and and Abraham understands this. When God says, I'm going down to Sodom, Abraham knows this isn't a fact-finding mission. He knows that trouble is coming. And God already has the facts about Sodom, and He's bringing judgment, and hence Abraham's response in the following verses, where we, where we see God's desire for His people to pray. Uh, verse 22, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. So the angels are moving on now. We'll read more about them in the next chapter. Um, they go, but God is still there. Abraham still stands before the Lord. It's interesting that when God announces His, his intentions for Sodom, that then God just stands there, <laughs> and He doesn't go anywhere, and He doesn't say anything. And maybe the silence gets a little awkward. And Abraham is standing there between Sodom and God, as if the Lord is waiting for Abraham to do something, to say something. I think that's exactly what's going on. I think this is an invitation to prayer. Abraham is in the council room of God. The king's plans have been revealed. Abraham, who has a seat at the table, now has an opportunity to dialogue with the king about it, and Abraham now takes full advantage of that opportunity. Verse 23 says that Abraham drew near. Some translations say Abraham approached God. It's a legal term, like an advocate approaching the judge's bench on behalf of someone on trial. And Abraham begins this process of intercessory prayer. Someone once said that Abraham isn't praying as much as he is priesting. Uh, he's serving in a priestly role, and, and what does a priest do? Uh, he's a man who stands before God on behalf of his fellow man. And what is Abraham's concern as he approaches the bench, as he approaches the judge? Verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. He's concerned about this. Far be it from you to, to treat the righteous and the wicked the same. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's the key right there. That's the heart of, of Abraham's concern, is that whatever God does, he would do what is just. If God's going to rain down judgment on wicked Sodom. What about the righteous? And you can bet that Abraham is thinking first and foremost of his nephew Lot who is living in the eye of the storm and who hasn't a clue what's coming. It may surprise you that the Bible regards Lot as righteous <laughs> because the picture of Lot in previous chapters and in the next chapter is less than flattering. And that's an understatement. And yet the Bible does elsewhere regard him, calls him a righteous man. The Bible doesn't say he's a smart man. He's a righteous man. We'll talk more about Lot next week. So Abraham's first concern is that God do, do what is just. His second concern is closely linked to that, that Lot and any other righteous ones in the city would not be treated the same as the wicked. But there's a third concern, and we get a clue of what that is based on how Abraham prays. And I find this fascinating. Abraham prays not simply that the righteous be spared, 
but that the wicked would be spared. He's praying for mercy for the whole city. Think about this. Abraham could have easily prayed, yes, God, it's time to do away with those sodomites, but before you blow up the city, can you please put a protective bubble around Lot's? And any other righteous people that are there? Or could you please give me a couple of days to get down there and get Lot out of there? And once the good guys are out of there, just level the place. That's how Jonah would have been. Remember Jonah? Preached on him last year. Had a fun time going through the book of Jonah. If this was Jonah, this chapter would have been over already. You're you're about to destroy Sodom? Great. Give me a front row seat. It's going to be awesome. Abraham's not like that. Instead, Abraham pleads for mercy for the city. And in doing so, Abraham is reflecting something of God's own heart. Yes, there comes a time for God to judge, but the Bible also describes God as slow to anger, extremely patient, loving to show mercy to all who call on His name. Uh, This God who, who says in Ezekiel, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. It's the heart of God. How instructive Abraham's attitude should be for us. It's good to pray for God's people. It's good to pray for fellow Christians. You should do that every day. But do not neglect your prayers for those without God, that God may show them mercy. I remember a few years ago back, that so-called church, Westboro Baptist, I don't know if they're still around. But their whole so-called ministry was based on bitter hatred and animosity towards unbelievers, in particular homosexuals. And they appeared to be gleeful over the notion of God judging them. They were like, they were Jonah-like. And I would say that that so-called church was every bit as wicked as the people they condemned, if not more so, because they claimed to be from God, misrepresenting the heart of God, who, yes, is the judge but who also is eager to show mercy. Indeed, we see God's eagerness to show mercy in God's response to Abraham's petition. When Abraham asked, will you spare the the city for the sake of 50? God says, if I find, this is verse 26, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham's like, really? (laughs) He's emboldened now. And so he begins pushing a little bit and and whittling things down. Well, how about 45? Well, how about, how about 40? This, this is like, kind of like Middle Eastern haggling in the marketplace almost, it, it seems like. And he keeps pushing, but he does so with reverence and respect. He says, listen, I know that I'm dust and ashes. I'm nothing compared to you, God. That, that's a great model for us when we come to prayer. Don't come into prayer uh, demanding with this sense of, sense of entitlement, like, like, like this is a conversation between equals. It's not. God is God and you are not. And so Abraham is pushing. He's, he's being respectful, but he's, he's pushing. He's being persistent. But God doesn't get mad or irritated when Abraham keeps asking. Not like me. When I, when I get irritated, my kids ask me for something over and over, and, and I'm like, will you stop nagging me? But God's different. God loves to be nagged. Keep on knocking. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. 
Jesus says when he teaches us about prayer. Be persistent in prayer. You will not wear God out. He has more endurance than you. Some people are like, oh, I just don't want to bother God with, with, you know, with this. No, no, do it. It's no bother to him. It'll not be more of a bother to you if you don't pray. God loves to be nagged because it means that when you do that and when you're persistent in prayer, it means that you know that he is your only hope. That you, you know that you have nowhere else to go. And that's exactly right. That's exactly where you need to be. And so Abraham pushes further, going down to 30 and then 20. And, 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 uh, and even then, God, because he loves to relent from bringing calamity, says, uh, even then, in those cases, I would spare the city. Uh, one of the lessons we're seeing here is not how extreme and harsh the judgment of God is, but how extreme and liberal the mercy of God is. And in verse 32, Abraham says, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And then the conversation stops. Did that bother you like it bothered me? Why, why does Abraham stop at ten? Why not keep going? It's like there's this great buildup from... This makes this kind of sermon hard to preach because it doesn't end the way that I would like it to end. This great buildup from 50 to 45 to 30 to 20 to, to 10, and, 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 and that's it. I heard, I heard somebody say it's like an unresolved symphony. You're waiting for the big climax. You're waiting for the big crescendo, and then nothing. God leaves. Abraham leaves. We're done, and we're left hanging, and we're not told explicitly why. I don't like that. God says, I won't destroy Sodom for the sake of ten. And then God leaves to destroy the city. And so there are two things that we know for sure. One, there, there aren't ten righteous people in the city. And two, we know that though Lot is a righteous man, that Sodom had gotten so bad that there is no one in the city whose righteousness can shield Sodom from the coming wrath. And so the question is, this was my question. This was one of the things that I struggled with all week long as I was uh, preparing this sermon. Did Abraham's prayer fail? <laughs> and after thinking through and wrestling through and praying through myself, I don't think so. Because there was nothing that Abraham asked for that he didn't get. Abraham wants the integrity of God to be upheld. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? He will. That's going to happen in the next chapter when God judges Sodom. Abraham also wants Lot to be saved from destruction. That happens too. Genesis 19 says God remembered Abraham. He heard the prayer and he responded. And so Lot is delivered from the city. So the righteous and the, the, and the wicked are not treated the same. Abraham asked for Sodom to be spared on account of ten or more uh, righteous, and God would have given Abraham what he asked for had there been that many in the city. But Sodom was more wicked than Abraham realized, I guess. And as God wraps up the conversation and the storm clouds of judgment darken over Sodom, Abraham, I think, knows how bad things are, 
uh, as, as the Lord is now on his mission. And he knows that the righteousness of Lot is insufficient to save. And so, like an unfinished symphony, the chapter concludes. But there's more. Not only did Abraham not fail uh, in his prayer, but in his dialogue with God, he stumbles upon an important truth. Abraham learned something very, very significant. I'm not sure if he realized how significant it was. But in this dialogue with God, Abraham catches a glimpse, a glimpse, a little hint of how God will save the world. God revealed something very important in his dialogue with Abraham. I wonder if you caught it. I wonder if it struck you like it struck me. Abraham asked, God, would you spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous? Now, we haven't seen anything quite like that in the Bible story up to this point. There's this concept in Scripture, uh, it's called corporate solidarity. The act of one can affect the many. We don't like this concept in America because we're so uh, independent and individualistic. But the ancient world and other cultures today get this better than we do, that a representative for the people can through his actions, impact the people he represents. We've seen a negative example of corporate solidarity in Genesis already with Adam, how the wicked act of one man, Adam, brings condemnation upon the many. But Abraham now is asking, well, if, that, if that's the case, can the, can the opposite be the case? Can the reverse be true? Could God extend mercy to the wicked, who are many, on the basis of the righteousness of the few. Could Sodom benefit from somebody else's righteousness? That's what Abraham is thinking. That's where he's going in this dialogue with God. Can that happen? And that is a really good question. It's one of the most important questions in the universe. But again, as as Abraham explores this with God, the conversation with God abruptly stops. The symphony uh, is unfinished, and there is no one in Sodom whose righteousness can rescue them. Indeed, think about this, even if there were 50 righteous in Sodom and God relented, that would only be a temporary delay. It's just a brief stay of execution. Because there is still this matter of justice to reckon with. So God, God could relent, but that still doesn't change all of the things that, have been, that, that Sodom has been guilty of. If the judge of all the earth will do what is right, then eventually Sodom must face the wrath of God. And here's the clincher, so must everyone. Because all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And we may recoil at the sins of Sodom, and yet everyone in this room has committed deeds worthy of eternal damnation in hell. We have all spurned God. We have all followed in Adam's footsteps in betraying God. There is no one righteous in the ultimate sense, not even one. And so what we need is a man 
who has a kind of righteousness that cannot only that 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 can not only shield sinners from the temporal wrath of God for a time, that's what Abraham was asking for, but we need a man who can also protect us from eternal wrath forever, who will protect us from the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. And so then the question is, well, who, who can do that? Who is strong enough to shield us from God? Who has the righteousness to stand before a holy God without being consumed? You know the answer, you gospel-rooted people. The only answer can be Christ, the offspring of Abraham. I love Psalm 2, where you have David warning about the judgment and wrath of Christ. But then the psalm ends by saying, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. (laughs) I love that. The solution to the terror of the coming wrath of God is not to run from God. He'll catch you. And it's not to continue to lift up your fist in defiance against God. He'll smash you. The solution is to take refuge in God. And it is only then where the holy judge suddenly becomes your blessed Redeemer and your closest friend. And the unfinished symphony of Genesis 18 remains unfinished for 2,000 years until the day God comes to finish it. Uh, The day that God came to earth as a man to represent man, to be a better priest than Abraham and a better intercessor with a righteousness better than Lot's. And this God, who is so eager to save sinners, still must see their sins punished because the judge of all the earth must do what is just. And so the prophet Isaiah predicted how Jesus would save sinners while judging sin. Speaking of Christ, the Scriptures say that by His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. How's He going to do it? He shall bear their iniquities, because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. On the cross, Jesus bears the sins of the people He saves and therefore bears the wrath of God the Father because of those sins. That's corporate solidarity. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans 5. Uh, he says, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Paul talks about this more in in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness. That's what we need. We need righteousness. We become the righteousness of God. The righteousness required to save us from the eternal wrath of God is the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is given as a gift to every sinner who calls on God's name for mercy. The only reason a sinner like Abraham or Lot or you, or me, or anyone else can be called righteous is because we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. And if we're clothed with Christ's righteousness, then we are forever shielded from Christ's wrath. Because God will never sweep away the righteous with the wicked. 
far be it from Him. So if you're here this morning unbelieving, take refuge in Christ. And if you're here this morning believing, continue to take refuge in Christ. It is His righteousness that saves you. It is His righteousness that keeps you saved.